Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, episode 1.10, The Starving Time. Last time, we left off discussing those first several years of the Jamestown colony. The first several years were conflict-ridden and saw a majority of the new settlers die due to the harsh conditions. And at the same time, the relationship between the settlers and the local Powhatan Indians was tense at best and downright hostile at worst. By the end of 1609, the colony was approaching what would become the single worst time in the history of the Virginia colony up to that date. Today, this period has become known as the Starving Time and is going to signify the low mark for the colony. John Smith by this time had left the colony and relations with Powhatan had become so bad that it saw John Ratcliffe skinned alive in December of 1609. Combined with the ongoing issues of starvation and disease, it's going to see the population of the colony plummet. The starving time very nearly marks the end of the Jamestown colony. The colonists at one point abandon the colony and make their way to ships, having had enough trying to survive in Virginia. Of course, today we know that they don't end up actually leaving. In fact, following this period, the colony will, very slowly at times, turn the corner and begin moving towards something that resembles a viable settlement. For today, we are going to spend our time looking at the starving time. Specifically, I want to look at three primary aspects. First, we are going to look at the traditional telling of the story of that winter of 1609-1610. What were the causes? How bad did it get? And how did it resolve? Second, we are going to discuss the realities of the starving time. I plan on looking at the question of how accurate is that traditional telling and what problems may exist with it. Finally, we are going to look at the end result. The starving time is going to have a major effect on the colony in a number of ways, and we are going to examine how these changes moving forward are going to completely change the direction of the Virginia Company and the colony as a whole. I want to start this week by looking at the winter of 1609-1610. We are going to jump in by looking at that traditional telling, before doubling back and looking at some of the causes. In many ways, it is difficult to get a great idea of what occurred during that winter. The sources during the time are thin, and there is something to be said about a sense of sensationalism that's going to creep into the eventual telling of the event. On the ground, the best source is going to be the colony's acting president, George Percy. Percy would write about the starvation and the terrible conditions at Jamestown during that winter. I'm going to read a quote from Percy's book. A true relation of the proceedings and occurrences of moment which have happened in Virginia from the time Sir Thomas Gates was shipwrecked on Bermuda, anno 1609, until my departure out of the country, which was anno domini 1612. And yeah, that's an awesome book title. Sounds super exciting. The quote is as follows. Now all of us at Jamestown began feeling that sharp prick of hunger, which no man truly described, but which he hath tasted the bitterness thereof. A world of miseries ensued, as the sequel will express unto you, insomuch that some to satisfy their hunger have robbed the store for which I have caused them to be executed. Then, having fed upon the horses and other beasts as long as they lasted, we were glad to make shift with vermin as dogs, cats, and rats, and mice. All was fish that came to net to satisfy the cruel hunger, as the boot, shoes, or any other leather some could come by. And those being spent and devoured, some were enforced to search the woods and feed upon serpents and snakes, and to dig the earth for wild and unknown roots, where many of our men were cut off and slain by the savages. 
And now, famine beginning to look ghastly and pale in every face, that was nothing to be spared to maintain life, and to do those things which seem incredible, as to dig up dead corpses out of graves and to eat them, and some have licked up the blood which hath fallen from their weak fellows. And amongst the rest, this was the most lamentable, that one of our colony murdered his wife, ripped the child out of her womb, and threw it into the river, and after that chopped the other in pieces and salted her for his food. The same not being discovered before he had eaten her. Thereof, for the cruel and humane fact, I had judged him to be executed. The acknowledgement of the deed being enforced from him by torture, having hung by his thumbs with the weight at his feet a quarter of an hour before he would confess the same. George Percy was the best source on the ground at the time. Other information we get from the events come from John Smith's writings in 1624. And in a moment, I'm going to share this account with you, but I want to give a pair of warnings on it first. First, John Smith left a few months earlier in the fall of 1609, so he was back in England when the winter of 1609-1610 rolled around. Likewise, he is writing this account in 1624, a full 14 years after the events actually took place. Now, we're going to talk more in a few minutes about the problems with the sources, including Smith's, but it's something that I want to be upfront about. Smith wrote in the General History of Virginia, New England, and the Summer Isles that, Nay, so great was our famine that a savage we slew and buried the poor sort, took him up again and ate him. And so did divers one another, boiled and stewed with roots and herbs. And amongst the rest did kill his wife, powdered her, and had eaten part of her before it was known, for which he was executed, as he well deserved. Now, whether she was better roasted, boiled, or carbonadoed, I do not know. But of such a dish as powdered wife, I have never heard of. This was that time, which still to this day we call the starving time. It were too vile to say, and scarce to be believed, what we endured, but the occasion was our own, for want of providence, industry, and government, and not the barrenness and defect of the country, as is generally supposed. For till then in three years, for the numbers were landed us, we have never from England provision sufficient for six months. Though it seemed by the bill of loading sufficient was sent us, such a glutted is the sea, and such good fellows the mariners, we as little tasted of great proportion sent us. As they of our want and miseries yet notwithstanding, they ever overswayed and ruled the business. Though we endured all that is said, and chiefly lived on what this good country naturally afforded. Yet, had we been even in paradise itself with these governors, it would not have been much better with us. Yet there was amongst us who, had they been the government as Captain Smith appointed, but that they could not maintain it, would surely have kept us from those extremes of misery. This, in ten days more, would have supplanted us all with death. Before we go any further, if you're wondering what does John Smith mean when he asks, was the wife carbonadoed, that translates roughly into, was she barbecued? So yes, that would in fact be just a little bit of cannibalism humor from our good friend John Smith. Between the accounts of Smith and Percy, it is possible to get a sense of the devastation that the winter of 1609-1610 brought. If you're looking for numbers, we know that there are about three to 400 settlers in Virginia when John Smith leaves. That includes men both inside Jamestown plus a handful of others who were outside the fort at other smaller outposts. 
By the time that Thomas Gates arrives at the end of May 1610, between 60 and 100 men remained alive. I've seen some other numbers as well, with some sources saying that the population may have been a bit higher when Smith leaves, and some have it a bit lower. This discrepancy does have some impact on the overall number that died during the winter. However, it is without any dispute that the winter of 1609-1610 was catastrophic, no matter where you get your numbers from. Regardless of the source, a whole lot of people die. The death toll during that winter very nearly meant the end of the colony. When Thomas Gates arrives, only about 10 of the men out of those survivors were in any condition to work. Time certainly appears to have become short for the colony, and it is not much of a leap to imagine that, had there been much more delay in relieving the colony, the entire settlement would have just died out. Based on the accounts of Percy and Smith, we get a sense for how deep the famine got within the colony. Percy mentions eating horses and other beasts before shifting to the local vermin. Percy tells of men digging for roots outside of the fort and eating snakes. Eventually, men begin eating the leather of their own boots. From there, the story takes a disturbing turn that includes exhuming bodies, cannibalism of those who had died, and even a story of a man who grew so desperate that he murdered his pregnant wife and ate her. It should not come as any surprise that during a period known as the Starving Time that, you know, starvation was going to be a serious problem. However, it is an interesting question to consider that this wasn't the first winter that the colonists had to survive in Virginia. In fact, this is going to be their third winter that the colonists were enduring. The winter was always rough in the colony, so why did that winter of 1609-1610 become so much more serious? The first major problem is the large number of men who arrived during the late summer of 1609. Recall from last week that 500 settlers had left England along with Thomas Gates. 300 of those men would arrive during the late summer of 1609, the rest being lost in that ship that sank along the way, or they're hanging out with Gates stuck in Bermuda. By the time these extra mouths to feed arrived in the colony, they were already experiencing some level of food shortages throughout Jamestown, which the colony typically did experience during these months. However, matters became dire upon discovering that much of the colony's corn had been infested with rot. Now suddenly, there is a massive influx of mouths to feed at a time where a large amount of the supplies and food stores were lost. Likewise, as we discussed last week, relations between Jamestown and Powhatan were less than ideal. Recall that Powhatan had become increasingly less interested in providing food to the colony. Whereas at the beginning, Powhatan believed that he could gain an advantage over his enemies, while at the same time containing the English, he had now moved on to a position where he wanted the English gone, or at least to leave his people alone. The change of heart came after continued English harassment of the Powhatan tribes, as well as Powhatan realizing that the food demands of the English were unsustainable. John Ratcliffe would personally learn just how little Powhatan was interested in providing corn when Powhatan had Ratcliffe skinned alive. Throughout the winter, the English would continually be harassed and attacked by the Indians, which meant that leaving the fort itself had become a very dangerous prospect. Following the death of Ratcliffe, Percy embraced a design of increased violence against the Indian people himself. Percy would write about two captured Indian children that the colonists had. Percy claims that, over his objections of course, the decision was made to throw the children into the river and shoot their brains out. Now, facing a serious overpopulation problem, 
Powhatan was not going to provide any relief to the increasingly serious famine during that winter. The equation is simple. There are too many mouths to feed and not even close to enough food to sustain them. Finally, consider that the colony during this perilous time was suffering from a serious lack of leadership. Look at the former leadership of the colony for a moment. John Smith, by this time, was gone after suffering an injury. John Ratcliffe died in December of 1609 at the hands of Powhatan. Lord Delaware, the new governor of the colony, was still in England where he was allegedly suffering from some health problems which prevented him from making the trip. The man that he sent in his place, Thomas Gates, was still shipwrecked down in Bermuda. George Percy was the interim leader of the colony, and while he did the best he could, he was never in a position where he was going to be looking to lead that colony. Between there being that sudden overpopulation problem and a lack of leadership and those worsening conditions of Powhatan, the colony was in very serious trouble heading into that winter. Add in that extra fact that as people were dying, it inevitably meant that there were going to be fewer and fewer people to do the work that could have ultimately helped to pull the colony out of this tailspin. This only serves to compound the already serious problem that the colony was now dealing with. By the time that Thomas Gates does arrive in May of 1610, he found the colonists in such a state of disarray that he made the decision to abandon Jamestown. On June 7, 1610, Gates, along with the surviving men, abandoned Jamestown. Those leaving the colony got on board four small boats and set sail down the James River. Just like that, the experiment of Jamestown very nearly came to an end, as nothing more than a footnote in history. Jamestown would have been just another failed North American English colony, following in the footsteps of both Roanoke and the Popham colony that had come before it. As we know, however, this would not be the end of Jamestown. As the small boats made their way down the James River, they spotted a skiff coming towards them. Lord Delaware had finally made it to Virginia to take over and begin exercising his duties as governor. In addition to bringing much-needed supplies and relief, Delaware brought possibly the most important supply of all. He brought men to replace those who had died in the colony. Now, it is worth noting that Delaware probably should have remained back in England. Almost from the moment he arrived, from the time he left in 1611, Delaware was constantly sick and typically bedridden. Thomas Gates would, for all intents and purposes, run the colony in Delaware's stead. Well, we don't know his response. We do know that Powhatan had been aware that he had won. He knew that the English were leaving, and for him, it must have been a very bit of welcome news. Conversely, when Powhatan had learned that Lord Delaware had in fact come to the rescue and the English were now coming back, it must have been an absolutely devastating blow. His best chance to rid himself of the English had come and very nearly succeeded. He will never get such an opportunity again. We have discussed what exactly the starving time was. By looking at the reports written by men like Percy and Smith, we can begin to get an idea of the desperations that the colonists faced during that fateful winter. I want to take a moment, however, to go back and look at the sources we have to deal with. Both Percy and Smith write about cannibalism, something that would become the defining feature of that winter. It was meant to show just how dire things really got. The first thing to state is the obvious. We know that the population had been reduced from three to 400 down to between 60 and 100. So we immediately know that the losses were substantial and catastrophic. 
there is no way to sugarcoat losses of that magnitude. However, questions do remain regarding how widespread and serious of a problem events like cannibalism actually became. Looking at John Smith first, there are some immediate concerns with his telling of the events that winter. First and foremost, it is impossible to ignore the fact that John Smith left the colony in October of 1609, before the period of starvation really got going. Furthermore, it's not until 1624 that Smith writes about how miserable this period was for the colonists. Smith would go so far to make light of the situation. In the portion that I read from Smith earlier in this episode, Smith jokes about cannibalism, commenting on the man who reportedly ate his wife. Smith questions the best way to cook one's wife and jokingly comments that he had never heard of such a dish as powdered wife. Smith may well have also discussed matters with George Percy or have may have heard stories from other survivors. However, in terms of first-hand knowledge, this is going to be outside what John Smith could actually provide. Beyond that, however, keep in mind that Smith had a history of writing sensationally in order to sell more books. If you recall from two episodes ago, we had discussed the relationship between the English and the Powhatan Confederacy. During that episode, I had discussed how John Smith published his version of the incident between himself and Powhatan, when Pocahontas had allegedly stepped in and saved him, a story which we now recognize as likely a work of complete fiction. As we had talked about, there is virtually no evidence that the events took place anything like how Smith says. Remember that Pocahontas was just 10 years old during the encounter, and Smith had likely included her in the story because she was a popular figure in England at that time, despite her death about a decade earlier. By incorporating Pocahontas into his writings, he had an opportunity to sell more copies of his book. So, given that we know Smith was willing to publish his general history of Virginia, New England, and the Summer Isles, with, we'll call it, dramatized portions, or realistically, blatantly false information to sell more books, it should draw that entire work into question. Those quotes I read earlier today come from the same work as the information about what happened between Smith, Powhatan, and Pocahontas. Smith appears to have had no problem publishing information that was false or at a minimum highly embellished in order to serve his own needs. Lastly, consider that Smith may have also been trying to paint a picture of his own leadership abilities. From the perspective of John Smith, all was going well, and then as soon as he left, boom, the people start eating each other. Who does that make look good? Well, John Smith. So then, why bother with Smith's writings at all? Anything written by John Smith should be taken with a heavy dose of skepticism, however, there may still be some good information in there. Smith was likely relying at least partially on conversations he had with others who were actually there. Percy would publish his work the following year on the subject. It is possible that Smith and Percy had spoken about the event that occurred after Smith had left, as much of what Smith writes about does seem similar to what Percy would write about in 1625. Oftentimes, it would be tempting to look at it and assume that Percy was basing his work on Smith's prior writings. However, in the case of George Percy, he was the party who was actually on the ground at the time during that winter. Furthermore, despite writing the manuscript to defend his time as governor of the colony in 1625, the manuscript wasn't actually published until 1922. The evidence supports that Percy may well have been writing as a direct rebuttal to John Smith. He leaves the manuscript off by dedicating it to his nephew, before stating that the reason for him to write the book is to address the many untruths that were floating around about Virginia at the time. 
Based on the timing of the manuscript in 1625 and the fact that Smith had published the year before, it would seem that the part about wanting to clear up those untruths is a direct shot back at John Smith. Finally, please consider that Percy may have also been working here with an ulterior motive. Much as in the vein with John Smith, George Percy is going to have just as much reason to get the blame for the starving time off of himself. This is a bias for him and it's something that's going to be reflected in his writing. Nobody is going to want to be blamed for most of the colony dying under their watch, George Percy included. Either way, both of our two main sources here are going to have some question marks surrounding them. We are still going to refer to them, however, because they are frankly the best sources we have regarding that winter. When discussing the most sensational talking points from that winter, nothing, however, looms larger than the allegations of cannibalism. Both Smith and Percy write about it, so at least to some degree there were stories out there of it. However, despite the stories in the popular imagination, there is relatively little evidence that cannibalism occurred, and that even if it did, that it was anything more than a few individual incidents as opposed to a more widespread problem. Historians have spent decades debating whether or not cannibalism actually took place in Jamestown, and it is still something up in the air for debate. Beyond the writings of Smith and Percy some 14 years later, evidence of cannibalism in Jamestown remains relatively light. Thomas Gates himself would write about the colony as well. In his writings, he would strongly refute the idea that there had been cannibalism practiced. However, much like John Smith, Thomas Gates had not actually been in Jamestown during the winter. Remember that he was down in Bermuda where he was shipwrecked. It is certainly possible that such events may have taken place prior to his arrival without him actually knowing about it. When Gates does arrive, however, things are so bad that he throws his hands up and decides that, yeah, it's time to bail out on this project. That, in and of itself, could indicate that conditions were bad enough on the ground that something as unthinkable as cannibalism might have actually occurred. Now, adding a new wrinkle to the intrigue, in 2013, archaeologists discovered the remains of a teenage girl who did show evidence of having been butchered and eaten. This is the first direct evidence of cannibalism taking place in the colony. Of course, neither Smith nor Percy wrote about a 14-year-old girl being eaten, which, you know, would have been super helpful in this situation. The evidence suggested that the girl had died from natural causes rather than being murdered, so she does not appear to have been killed for the sole reason of eating her, so that rules her out from being the wife in the tale that both Percy and Smith talk about. This is, however, the first direct evidence that we have of cannibalism in Jamestown. The body of the girl, however, simply proves that there was a single incident of cannibalism. It does not go towards explaining how widespread of a problem it actually was for the colony. Regardless of the veracity of the stories that have emerged out of that winter, we do know that the death toll from it was staggering. Conditions had gotten so bad that the colony was nearing a point of complete collapse when Thomas Gates arrived in May of 1610. So when it comes to the questions of the sources, be it Percy or Smith or Gates, the specific events of that winter, such as cannibalism, are going to remain questions for future historians to work out. And yet, while questions remain as to the veracity of the information we have from that winter, one thing does remain true. The starving time is going to have a long-lasting effect on the colony. In some ways, it's going to change the perception of the English North American colonies entirely. In this fashion, whether it be Smith or Percy, their stories do matter. 
especially with Smith, his writings about Jamestown and that winter helped form the impression that so many people had of Virginia. Liar or not, Smith was popular in England and people read the guy's book. I want to end today by looking at what effects the starving time had on Virginia moving forward. As discussed previously, that winter marked something of a symbolic low point for the Jamestown colony. However, it would be wrong to believe that following the winter of 1609-1610, that living in Jamestown really got any easier. For example, jumping ahead a decade and looking at the three-year period between 1619 and 1622, we see the English send approximately 3,570 people to the colony, bringing the total population up to 4,270. During that same three-year period, approximately 3,000 colonists are going to die. So in terms of a high mortality rate, that is something that is going to continue for some time to come. However, despite the continued high mortality rate, the starving time still does tend to stand out. Following the starving time, we see Lord Delaware and Thomas Gates arrive and really usher in a new period for the colony. While it would be easy to blame those widespread changes on the winter of 1609-1610, the fact is that these changes were already being worked on during the summer of 1609. And recall from our last episode, we had discussed the changes coming to the colony in an attempt to increase profitability. Major changes, however, would appear in how England viewed Virginia. These changes affect not only the future of the colony, but in many ways it changes how we view the United States to this very day. We have discussed before how Virginia was being put forward as being nearly synonymous for Eden itself. Of course, we know that the reality was always much different. Life in Virginia was hard, and it would continue to be hard for many more years to come. Statistically, if you went to Virginia during those early years, the odds were considerably better that you would die rather than survive and prosper. However, that really doesn't make for a good advertisement. Come to Virginia, where you're probably going to starve to death and die. Not the kind of thing that you want to put on your promotional poster. However, following the winter of 1609-1610, it was becoming increasingly difficult to sell to the people back in England that Virginia was this paradise on Earth. Throughout the 1610s, stories of cannibalism throughout Virginia would begin spreading through England. John Smith doesn't do anything to temper those beliefs in 1624 when he publishes his history. As the tales of hardship begin to emerge during the 1610s and into the 1620s, promoters had to shift their focus and efforts in order to keep people interested. From this point forward, the very ethos of Virginia began to change in the popular culture. No longer was it being portrayed as a land that was overflowing with its bounty. Rather, it evolved into a place where the bounty existed, yes, but it required hard work and perseverance to find it. These are things that, even today, most people in the United States would consider a core value of the nation itself. Nothing is given but through hard work all can be achieved becomes the new selling point for potential colonists. Amongst the promoters, a popular version of the story placed the blame for the starving time on colonists' laziness. The argument here is that the land had plenty to offer and that the catastrophe of that winter had been caused by the actions of the settlers. And this is reflected in John Smith's writings. Remember in his work where he writes that, now there was plenty there, people just weren't working to get it. For the promoters, that idea that had everybody just worked harder, been more dedicated, they would have survived, was a perfect thing to pitch. People are willing to work hard if it means that, hey, I can get rich and prosper. 
In this way, the period can be described as a one-time incident and not something indicative of future struggles. For the promoters, making sure that the blame didn't land on Virginia itself was critical. For Mint denying that the starving time occurred, like Thomas Gates, it is important to understand that at the same time Gates refused the events, he himself was a major shareholder in the Virginia company. Gates had a vested interest in the colony doing well, and the idea of cannibalism wasn't going to accomplish that end. We will see this idea of hard work and a campaign against laziness continue next week as we move into the events of the 1610s. The Starving Time is so often portrayed as a low mark for the colony. In the decade to follow, the colony would begin to become somewhat more sustainable as new laws emerged to get control over the fledgling colony. At the same time, we will see the emergence of tobacco, a crop that is going to change the future not only for Virginia, but is going to become a critical part of the future of the United States. All of these changes are taking place in the shadow of a continued war with the Powhatan Confederacy. Next time, we will dive into all these problems as we start looking at the period after the starving time as Jamestown and Virginia begin their second chapter. As always, I want to thank you all for listening, and I will be back in two weeks as we continue our trek through Virginia.